We'll be reading from Exodus 32, 1 to 14, um, continuing from verses 30 to 34, and chapter 33 from 15 onwards. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up, brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graven, a graven tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are, fas- these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered bond offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your rod burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offsprings as the stars of the heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Verses 30. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to to the Lord. Perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, these people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that, that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place where, to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Chapter 33 from verse 15. 
And he said to them, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other person and from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by my name. And I have known you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. For he said, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and leave. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and, will, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and I will write on the tablets the words where on the fir- that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses caught two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up, to, went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's ask for the Lord's help as we begin. Father, we thank you for what we have seen in this book so far, that you choose to break into our world to reveal yourself. And we pray, Father, that as we reflect on that idea this morning, that you would help us to see the great privilege of knowing you through your Son. We ask for your help by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder how you respond when you know you've let the Lord down in a big way. You know, when you get that sinking feeling in your stomach and you think to yourself, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Why did I watch that? And I don't know about you, but I know I can respond in one of three ways. First of all, I can say, well, the Lord, he doesn't want to hear from me. And I go into a kind of penance for a few days, not praying, just to show that I'm sorry. 
Otherwise, I, secondly, might build up a kind of tally in the back of my mind of all my mistakes and think to myself, well, this is the kind of seventh or eighth time, Rob. Surely the Lord's going to be angry with you now. Or thirdly, I might say to myself, well, it doesn't matter. You know, the Lord understands my motivations. It doesn't matter that I messed up in that way. I wonder how you respond when you feel you've let down the Lord in a big way. (coughs) See, that question is actually very revealing because it exposes for us our kind of functional belief. What we really believe connects us with God. See, if we think every time that we mess up that God's unhappy and he's going to kind of turn his back on us, well, then we will think that our relationship with him depends on our ability to keep performing. Or if we think the Lord is not bothered when we mess up, well, then chances are we have not understood what it's taken him to make a relationship with us. See, actually, you can learn, can't you, a lot about the strength of a relationship precisely when it goes wrong. You'll know that your closest friends you have are not those you've never argued with, but the ones you have. And there's been reconciliation and you've moved on. And actually, these chapters this morning do something of that with us and our relationship with God. At the beginning of chapter 32 is a bit like that moment when you're eating a dinner in a quiet restaurant, if you remember that far back, and um, you hear suddenly loads of plates smash in the kitchen. Or that moment in a movie where someone walks into a bar and the kind of record scratches off and everyone goes quiet. Because up to chapter 32... This has been a real high point in the story. Quite literally, Moses is on the mountain at the top. And he's on the mountain getting the flat pack instructions for the tabernacle. And you'll remember Mike showed us very helpfully last week that the tabernacle was the very means that God was going to be present with his people. It was a kind of new Eden. But if that was a new Eden, well, this is a new Genesis 3 as things go dramatically wrong. And these chapters, as we look at them, I think will show us what it really means to be in relationship with God, what the only foundation can be for you and me to have a relationship with God. Uh, We're going to see, first of all, why we cannot be in God's presence, secondly, how we might be in God's presence, and thirdly, where we can be in God's presence. See, first of all then, why we cannot be in God's presence. See, the spiritual CV for Israel is looking pretty healthy so far in Exodus. I know they grumbled in chapter 14, uh, but actually that was before the covenant was made. And when they entered into that covenant, that agreement with God, do you remember what they said? They said, all the things the Lord commands, we will do. And there was no reason particularly to doubt that unless we've read further ahead. But that all changes in chapter 32, because there Moses receives the blueprints for the tabernacle, and right at the beginning of chapter 32, the scenes change, and we cut back to base camp. And just look at what the people are up to uh, as they wait. Uh, Chapter 32, verse 1, uh, page 150 in one of these books. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, Up, 
make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. Now the people, they grow impatient, they ask Aaron for a, for a god, and that is the point where Aaron should turn around and go, don't be so ridiculous. But instead we read that he, in verse 4, took the gold uh, from the people, fashioned it with a graving tool, and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It is a complete horror story. The rising up to play does have sexual overtones. Think of the kind of swingers party, that kind of idea. And there's a sad irony here because the fact that the people ate and drank with this idol reminds us of what they were doing on the mountain a couple of chapters ago as they ate and drank with God himself. Now, of course, we've got to ask the question, what is going on here? I mean, it just seems absolutely crazy, doesn't it, that they turn to this golden calf. Now, on one level, of course, they're breaking the commands. Uh, God said in chapter 20, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything on heaven above or on earth beneath or the waters below. And it seems like they've read that as a kind of description of what to do rather than what not to do as they bow down to this golden calf. But actually, there's something much more subtle going on here. See, it's easy to read this and kind of dismiss it and think to ourselves, well, that's never going to be my danger. And I'm sure it's not. None of us, I guess, have got golden calves at home. But actually, notice what they say about this idol. Have a look at verse 5 again. It's perhaps not as we might imagine. Chapter verse, uh, verse 5 of chapter 32. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the calf. Except he doesn't say that, does he? He says it's a feast to the Lord. See, it's not that they've kind of dismissed Yahweh and turned to a completely different God. Rather, they've kind of morphed God into this calf. They've kind of formed a hybrid God. Not a flat-out rejection, but a turning and morphing of the tree God. Now, when you see that, actually, idol, idolatry becomes actually a lot closer to home. Actually, we can dismiss it easily as kind of primitive, but actually, once we see it's a, a morphing of the true God actually, it becomes very personal. See, it's not that the people thought that this calf was a god. They weren't kind of stupid. They didn't have their brains removed. See, in the ancient world, there was a a view that the gods uh, were kind of made present in objects like this calf. There was a bit like a kind of footstool where a god would have their feet. It's kind of like a hyperlink to access God. And you'll see that that's the issue going on in chapter 32. In verse 1, we see it's because they're impatient about Moses coming down the mountain. 
So they, they worry about having access to God. So they think they can kind of speed up God's hand by getting God's presence now in this calf. But there's a huge irony, isn't there? A tragic irony here. Because what's Moses doing up on the mountain? Well, he's hearing the very means that God will be present with his people. And they want to kind of speed things up and do it in their way by constructing this calf. See, idolatry is a double tragedy. Not only does it remorph the true God so we don't see him, but also we lose the very thing we're seeking in the first place. See, it's like a child who receives an envelope on their birthday. And they get the envelope, they open it up, and they think to themselves, what's this? It's just an envelope. And so they tear it up in a fit of rage and say, I don't want an envelope for my birthday. I wanted to go to Disneyland. And the parents say to little Johnny, well, that, those were the tickets. We were going to send you. It's that kind of idea here. God is going to be with his people And yet they want to twist God to make him like they expect him to be. And when you see that, you see actually idolatry is all over our culture. It's all over our world. And it's all over our hearts, isn't it? See, every time we say, I wish God was like this, or I think God is more like that, or God can't possibly mean that, we do the same thing. We construct the golden calf in our hearts. And of course, the greatest example of that is in the Lord Jesus himself. He was the way God has manifested his presence with us on earth. But what did people say about him? Well, they said the cross is ridiculous. If he's going to save others, he needs to come down from the cross. It doesn't kind of work to our logic. Or what good has come from Nazareth? Jesus didn't look very impressive. And each time people do that, if we do that, Well, then we do the same thing that Israel fell into, constructing a calf in our hearts. But actually, these verses do teach us about idolatry, but they're not here to kind of convict us and make us um, lament uh, without an end in itself. They are here to show us a dead end for how you and me come into God's presence See, it's remarkable, isn't it, that Israel have failed so quickly. They're like a a runner doing the uh, the hurdles. And the the starting gun goes, they they go straight out of the the starting blocks, and they crash into the first hurdle, trip over, crash into the second, the third, and fall out of the race. Because it's only been a few weeks that they've had this covenant. And yet they've broken possibly one, two, or three of the commands outright. See, it's a repeat, isn't it, of Genesis. Just as God gave, was present with Adam and Eve in the garden, Adam and Eve stuffed it up. They couldn't obey one command. And here, Israel is doing the same. And you and me wouldn't do any better. See, that feeling we get of guilt when we mess up, uh, that sense in which we don't feel we can come into God's presence, is actually a right instinct. Because none of us can on our own. See, all of us have that propensity to commit idolatry in our hearts. But thankfully, that is not the end of the story. Because secondly, we see here how 
we might be in God's presence. See, what can be done? I mean, they've broken the commandments, and you'll know that the commandments weren't just kind of good advice. They were a covenant. They were an agreement, like your mortgage agreement, like a wedding agreement. And you'll remember that a When they made the covenant, the blood was chucked over the altar, symbolizing God's side of the deal, and chucked over the people, symbolizing their end of the deal. And the point was that if they broke this agreement, well, then their blood would be demanded. And God is perfectly in his rights, just like your mortgage company is if you decide not to pay your mortgage anymore. God is in his rights to call on their blood which is what he seems to do in 32 verse 10. God says this, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I might make a great nation of you. See, if we're tempted to kind of brush off idolatry as um, not very significant, well, this gets us to look again, doesn't it? Because actually, it is an offense against God. It's the greatest sin we can make. And this, to say the least, is a complete low point. Moses has just set up the tabernacle. He's just found a way for us to be present with God, and now the people are drinking and eating with an idol. I'm sorry if this is a bit graphic, but it's kind of like a couple who get married, and they head off to their honeymoon. They're really happy. They're on the plane. They they arrive at their destination, And while they're on the honeymoon, the groom starts sleeping around. See, it's that shocking. Everything in this Bible has been building up to this marriage between God and his people, and now they've committed adultery. And actually, it's where we find ourselves. Uh, Paul says this in Romans chapter 1. For although they knew God, speaking about us, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, But in their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles and golden calves. You see the point that the whole of humanity has done this. We've twisted God around, so we worship the creation rather than the creator. And these people... A bang to rights. They've got a huge charge sheet against them. They're in the dock. They're, they're guilty. The evidence is completely stacked up against them. But then Moses does something remarkable. Have a look at what he does in verse 11 when God's, after God says he's going to destroy them. Moses implored the Lord his God and said... O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Notice what Moses doesn't say. He doesn't say, oh, come on, God. That was just a practice round. Let's have another go. He doesn't say, well, the people's hearts are in the right place. They didn't really mean to do this golden calf. It was just because I took too long on the mountain. But no, Moses knows that the deal's off. In fact, later he breaks the stone tablets, the, the equivalent of ripping up the contract. 
But he implores the Lord on the basis of the Lord's promises. And look at the extent to which Moses goes at this point. Look at verse 32 over the page. See, Moses goes back up to the mountain and he says, verse 32, but now if you will not forgive their sin, but if not, please block me out of your book that you have written. See, to blot out of the book is um, the book of kind of the living. And so Moses is asking that his, he will die, that he would be, die for his people. It's a remarkable change, isn't it, for Moses? I mean, remember where he was in chapter 3 as he was told to go to Pharaoh. He tried everything possible to get out of that responsibility. But now Moses is different. He's doing everything possible to take responsibility for his people. He steps in, knowing they're guilty, but puts his life on the line. And of course, Moses here is foreshadowing a greater mediator. See, when Moses offers to give his life, in fact, the Lord turns around, verse 33, and said, whoever's sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. See, it's not, okay, Moses, I will kill you for the people. It's actually, Moses, you can't do that. Because one comes who can, and his name is Jesus. See, he lays down his life. He's the greater Moses who prays, Father, forgive, as they drive nails into his arms. And, remarkably, he is mediating for us now. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7 says this, He is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. It's remarkable to think, isn't it? The Lord Jesus is interceding for us now, keeping us saved now. But actually, a mediator alone is not enough. See, an unfaithful groom on a honeymoon might plead with his new wife to be taken back, but that doesn't mean that she's obliged to. See, actually, there's another party here. And as much as Moses might want God to forgive, well, God doesn't necessarily have to. But in chapter 33, we see a dramatic turnaround. See, Moses intercedes again. Look at 33, verse 16, uh, with me. Moses says this, For how should it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people, is it not with your going with us that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. Moses is asking, look, if you might save me, but actually you've got um, the very thing that makes us distinct is that I've got these people with me. And verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And in chapter 34, verse 1, we read that the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were in the first tablets, which you broke. It's remarkable, isn't it? God's kind of taking the contract out of the shredder and putting it back together. He's rewriting it. The marriage isn't off. But actually, there's an important difference with this covenant that's made again. 
See, remember at the first one, the people were present and Moses read them the law and they said, all that you've said, we will do. But now, there's none of that. There's no proud declaration of obedience. It's just Moses and God uh, forming this covenant. See, God brings this covenant, this new relationship with God, not on the basis of the people's performance, but because he chooses to show mercy and be gracious to them. Because his mediator intercedes for his people and because his character is to show mercy, he is able to be with his people. And actually we see that glimpsed uh, when he speaks to Moses. Uh, See, Moses uh, gets the answer he's hoped for for three chapters. Uh, The Lord says, I will go with you. And in verse 18, Moses says, I want to see your glory. Now, it's easy to read that as a kind of, Moses was kind of intrigued about how God looked, but that's not quite what he's asking. See, glory was another word for a sign. And so Moses here is asking for some kind of reinforcement that God will deliver what he's just promised. But actually, for a sign, it's a very strange one. Because if you're going to show someone a sign, you don't put them in a dark room and turn off the lights. But that's what God does with Moses. He puts him in a cave and covers him over so he cannot see. But instead, he hears. In other words, Moses sees God's glory with his ears as he hears his name. And look at what God says uh, in verse 5. The Lord descended on the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, why does he say that about the third and fourth generation? We've got Q&A next week. Uh, and the fact that he visits iniquity. Now, that's not that God's a pushover. He clearly punishes sin. But don't let that take your attention from the fact that he forgives uh, and shows steadfast love for thousands You see, it's the greater to the lesser that he does punish the guilty, but for a thousand generations, he shows mercy and compassion. See, it's not that God kind of brushes sin under the carpet, but his character is to show mercy and compassion. You may have heard that idea that the God of the Old Testament is the kind of angry one, the God of the New Testament is the kind of friendly, cozy one, but that's just nonsense, isn't it, when we see passages like this that God is the same throughout, gracious and compassionate to us. So you and me work very differently, um, don't we? We always have a kind of end point to our grace. Uh, I don't know about you, but my patience uh, has an expiry date. Uh, We only take so much from people before we kind of think, well, yeah, I've seen enough. But God is much more gracious than we are. See, he's compassionate. This biggest betrayal, this spiritual adultery, he forgives and he forms a relationship again. 
See, the only way you and me can be with God in his presence is precisely because of his character. See, if we think we deserve to be in God's presence, well, this pours cold water on us, doesn't it? It reminds us that our hearts, as John Calvin said, were, are a perpetual idol factory. And God has any number of charges against us. We're idolatrous a thousand times a day. But we have someone who stands in the breach for us, who calls on God to show compassion and mercy. And we have a God who is precisely that, gracious and compassionate. I wonder if you see that. I wonder when you mess up, what kind of image of God comes into your head? Perhaps it's the angry head teacher who's about to give you a detention. The disappointed parent who looks on you with that kind of sense of, you've disappointed us. The kind of passive-aggressive friend who will keep a relationship with you, but they won't let you forget that you've messed up. But actually, what about this image here? of a gracious God, arms open, ready to show mercy and compassion. But how on earth is he able to do that? And how do we know that for certain? Well, finally, we see where we can be in God's presence. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of, when I was reading this, thought to myself, well, I know how this goes. Uh, God's with them. They mess up, God forgives them, God remakes the covenant, and then God will be with them again. This kind of makes sense, doesn't it? But actually, it's not quite the same by the end of it. Lots has changed. Uh, First of all, God's presence is slightly in a different place. See, chapter 33 kind of starts with a a bit of a tangent. And for me, this was kind of a a big kind of puzzle uh, as I read through, uh, a lot of people say, well, it's just kind of random, but obviously nothing's random in the Bible. We know the Holy Spirit's inspired it. Uh, but chapter 33 begins by telling us about the tent of meeting. When Moses would go into the tent, God will descend, and he sp- spoke with God. But notice where the chapters finish uh, in chapter 33. Uh, do I mean 33? Um, I don't know why I've put that. No, I do mean that. Yeah, sorry. 33 verse 8. I trust myself from Friday. There we go. Uh, see, 33 verse 8. Whenever Moses went out of the tent, the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when the people saw the pillar of cloud... All the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. And so you've got this kind of image of the people looking on wantingly to be with God and his presence. But it's outside the camp. It's through Moses. But actually something changes by the end of chapter 34 because Moses comes down the mountain and he's changed in a dramatic way. You know how it is when people come back from their overseas holidays, and you see they, they've not put on the factor 50. And you say to yourself, oh, I can see you've caught the sun. You've changed. And you might say that about Moses, but it's not that he's just got a bit of a suntan. His face is lit up. In fact, a little bit of trivia that does nothing for the sermon, but just out of interest, is that this word was wrongly translated for many centuries, horns. And so if you look at some statues of Moses, 
at, you'll see that Moses got two little horns on there. Please don't remember that off the back of this sermon. (laughs) But Moses is kind of like a kind of glow-in-the-dark magazine you used to have as a child. The lights go out and it still glows. And the reason is, is that God is showing us that something of his presence is found with Moses. Now, we struggle with that idea because we think surely God is present everywhere. And of course he is. But in the ancient world, people had a very big sense of God being present in particular places or with particular people. And there is some sense in the Bible of God's special presence with his people. Just think Revelation 21. But at this point, Moses becomes a kind of walking tabernacle, a kind of hyperlink to knowing God. See, the mediator who offers his life for his people becomes also the one through whom his people come to know the glory of God. I don't know if you've been in the presence of someone famous, but you, you notice that there's a famous person because the crowds start gathering. People flock to see them. They get the camera phones out. They, they long to touch them. But imagine what this would have been like to know that actually Moses had been with God and in some sense you could see his glory. But actually, for all its attraction, you and me have something far better today. See, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 picks up on this episode, and it says this, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains over the old covenant when it's read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Now, even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But when anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And here's the key point. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, if that's raising questions for you, you're in good company with me because that is one of the most dense chapters of of Scripture and one of the hardest to understand. But hopefully you can pick up something of it that actually we see the Lord's glory in the face of Christ himself. See, the old covenant, Paul says, was passing away. It wasn't bad. It was just temporary, like the batteries on a torch fading out. But actually, in Christ, we have something that never fades. His presence is in his face. But of course, we say to ourselves, well, we can't see Christ's face. Where do we see his glory? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 goes on to say this. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do you see what Paul's saying? The glory of Christ is found in the gospel. Just as Moses was in the cave and couldn't see God's face, he only heard the words, well, you and me don't see Christ's face for now, but we do hear his glory in the word of the gospel. See, as Moses stepped in to be blotted out, we know that Jesus was blotted out for his people. He paid 
for their transgressions so that we might live and be with him. See, what do you say to yourself when you mess up and you feel that you cannot come into God's presence thinking that God won't tolerate another transgression? Well, we look at the gospel, don't we? Because it's the gospel that shows God's glory, shows his character, and reminds us that we are in him, and we are with him, and he is committed to us, not because of our performance, but because of his son. As the song famously says, when Satan tempts me to despair, And tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, who made an end to all my sin. Our Father in heaven, we praise you so much for this glimpse of your character. We praise you, Father, for this great truth that while you do not overlook sin, you are compassionate and merciful. We pray for all of us, Father, that you would give us a deep realism and sense of your character particularly father when we stuff up but father as we look on our world as well please father help us to see you as you truly are and we ask in jesus name amen